This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, still in for Matt Chorley. It's my penultimate show of this run of podcasts, so you're not rid of me yet. And I've got a great podcast to take you into the weekend today. It's going to be cold out there, so we're talking the politics of winter with my friend and yours, the historian Phil Tinline. But before then, it's time for today's columnist panel. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yes, enjoy my India Night. Hi, India. Do we have India Night? I'm here. Oh, thank you. God, my heart was in my mouth then. Uh, you? It was like, uh, it was like, you know, losing a child. Uh, and speaking <laughs> of children, sorry, James. Uh, James Marriott joins me in the studio. Hi, James. Hello. I wouldn't have gone ahead without India. Uh, you would have, you would have walked out the studio, <laughs> and I would have just, you know, had to, had to busk. Would for have half left you to it. Yeah. Well, it's good that it's good that you mean so much to each other. Uh, right. It's lovely to have you both. How are you, India? How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm glad it's Friday. I'm back on Monday though. I'm not that I ever would ever complain about covering for Matt Shirley. It's the honour of my life. How about Where you? is Matt? Matt is Matt is on the uh, Times and Sunday oh, Times he's on the Literature Festival at Sea. James Marriott and I were just discussing this off air about how um, how we're devastated not to have been invited. Uh, mm. Oh, sorry, sorry. James has been invited. I he was invited. but stupidly turned it down, which I now actually slightly regret. On what grounds did you turn it down? Just I was like, oh, you know, crossing the North Atlantic in November isn't that going to be a bit Titanic-y? Do you get seasick and easily? I have not experienced the sea enough to know whether I get seasick. You grew up by the seaside, though. But I didn't grow up in the seaside, or rather, in the sea. <laughs> in uh, the sea. <laughs> oh. I, I yeah, I like imagine that I'm sufficiently nautically inexperienced that I might. Oh God. Well, you know, next year, James. Next year, we'll. Uh, We'll, uh, we'll have a great time. We'll, we'll have a great time. We'll be sunbathing on deck on it will the be, Queen yeah. Mary too. And it the, won't be like Titanic. In the middle of November. No, although I will lift you, you up at the... You won't be the rose to my whatever. <laughs> I can't remember who they are. Oh, that's, that, we, we can't take that metaphor any further. Uh, right. <laughs> we'll lose listeners. Uh, it pains me to talk about another radio station here, but Keir Starmer has just been on Classic FM where he said one of the most outrageous things he has ever said. And I think this will start a week-long row within the Labour Party. He's just been on Classical FM where he said this is the piece of classical music that best sums up the Labour Party. Independence, independence, 
Yes, that was Beethoven's ninth, aka Ode to Joy. And the observant among you will know that's the anthem of the European Union. India, that's a brave choice, isn't it? It's quite punchy, isn't it? It really <clears throat> is. Yeah, I'm, I'm slightly surprised. I mean, I'm all in favour, obviously, but, um, but I am quite surprised because it's quite on the nose. It is, it is. And he he really, really went for it in how he described it. He said it was, you know, very uh, stirring music and had a real sense of energy about it. He said, also says it has a sense of moving forward to a better place, uh, which is not what you'd expect from someone who's otherwise wow. been so disciplined about uh, mm. disavowing his past as a remainer in chief. Uh, what do you think, James? Well, it's fascinating. And I'm trying to think what he could possibly have said that would have you know, that would have worked. The challenge is that he can't say anything too obscure, otherwise he seems, you know, elite and out of touch. Exactly. And if you and, pick, say, Pomp and Circumstance by Elga, you sort of maybe seem, mm. seems too focus-grouped. Yeah. lots of good British, you know, you could do Lark Ascending by Vaughan Williams or something. But is that... Well, yeah, and that could actually... There's a plausible case that that could, you know, represent the Labour Party's movement in the polls, <laughs> um, swirling ever upwards. I think you should... Yeah, I think that is the... That is about... One of about three acceptable answers, I think. Do you think, had he planned this in advance, or was this something that he had to do off the cuff? Well, the interesting thing about Keir Starmer, I, 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 have, to, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with this particular show, which is hosted by Moira Stewart, the former BBC Newsreader. It seems a, a bit like a Desert Island disc thing for, uh, for classical music, I, I assume. Uh, so maybe Keir Starmer had planned this book. But the thing about Keir Starmer is... When you listen to him talk about classical music, it's one of the very few things he sounds properly enthused and human about. You know, most people say when Keir Starmer talks about football, which he genuinely loves, it sounds a bit like you've put the Wikipedia page for football in front of him and he's like <laughs> reading it out. Whereas with classical music, he is very much himself. So I he do plays wonder the flute, whether. Doesn't he? He does play the flute. Which has... I always think is a kind of wonderful image because he's such a sort of stodgy big man <laughs> that I can... the flute is such a delicate instrument. Yeah, the flute and the violin, you know. He uh... should play the flute in public more. Soften his image. Well, I, I'm, t I'm told by friends of Keir Starmer that he's not played the flute in a very long time. Um, but, you know, maybe that should be his, uh, his priority. A Prime Minister's questions. <laughs> he should accompany the particularly good lines, the little trill on the flute. Well, we should, Times Radio should expense a flute and get Keir Starmer. Next time Keir Starmer is on, give it to him and get him to, get him to play a tune. That um, would be very good. What is your favourite piece of classical music, India? I don't know. I don't know that I have one. I like opera. Ah. I'm quite, I'm quite, there's something wrong with my brain in that I like listening to classical music when I'm milling about. But if I'm at a concert, I kind of zone out after 20 minutes, which is really bad. And I'm trying to train myself out of it. But I like, I think I'm too stupid. I think I like words. I like a narrative. I don't like having to invent a narrative or a series of images in my head. I find it quite challenging what about you james yeah i'm with india i sort of think with classical music it really helps to have been trained or to have played an instrument at school which i didn't do uh mozart i'm a basic mm. um bit of basic in my taste i like mozart operas that's pretty much all yeah. i really 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 love i can't pos i can't claim to be a classical music expert i like the Rachmaninoff piano concerto that they play over brief encounter uh but, you know, don't ask me which one it is. Uh, I used to listen to the best of Tchaikovsky uh, when I wrote my university essays. So there you go. None of which, by the way, none of these choices are particularly political controversial. No, uh, I, was trying to, I was trying to... What is the well, it, piece of classical music that sums up Patrick Maguire and Times Radio? <laughs> that's really... That's re there's, um, there's, a, there's a suite uh, of... 
Benjamin Britten symphonies, which he wrote when he was a teenager, called Simple Symphony. There's one called Playful Pixicato, which I do think sums me up. <laughs> uh, I recommend it. I really recommend it. It's, uh, it's a very jolly piece. Uh, you know, at least... I'm trying to think what was the most controversial kiss. If there's an answer more controversial than that Keir Starmer could have given I don't know probably saying he Wagner couldn't, yeah also. Wagner would, he couldn't say that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. what terms no, of no the Labour Party no. Wagner <laughs> the ride of the Valkyries <laughs> yeah no 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 it's well glad he didn't glad he didn't do that uh, right uh, we're speaking of politics and questions of etiquette and class or whatever um, I just want to talk to you briefly about the other big political scandal this week forget Keir Starmer and Ode to Joy uh, and apologies for the language here James Cleverly, the Home Secretary so seeking to calm a row about whether he called the town of Stockton in County Durham a shithole by saying he instead called the local MP shit. Uh, apologies again for the language. Obviously got to explain this story as it happened. India, do you think it really matters which of the two James Cleverly said or does it matter that we're debating the holder of a great office of state being so coarse in their use of language in the House of Commons chamber? I think the coarseness of the language is debatable in 2023. Mm. You know, he wasn't he wasn't orating. He wasn't standing there giving a speech using that language. He sort of muttered it under his breath. Um, I really, really don't have a problem with it with with either either version of 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 the words. Um, I think actually it's worse calling the calling somebody a shit MP than calling their constituency a shithole. Arguably, um, but. Does anybody really, is anybody really offended? Is anybody really offended? Is this language that you don't hear anywhere on the parliamentary estate? You know, it's, I think, obviously there are gradations of swear words and mm. I'm happy that he didn't use anything more vigorous. But, you know, saying, saying either word <clears throat> that he's now admitted to saying, I just don't think, I don't think it terribly matters. Do you agree, James? I don't agree. I think you shouldn't be referring to a constituency like that in those terms if you're an MP. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not hugely offended by it, but I can see why the argument happened because, you know, this is potentially very... Those kind of moments when someone in power seems to show contempt for people no, in the country very are very toxic. You know, I think about, you know, the famous incident when Mitt Romney, when he was a presidential candidate, was overheard saying that there were kind of 40% of Americans were just dependent on the government and, and they'd had never a victim mindset him, yeah. and they'd never vote for him anyway. Mm. Uh, when Hillary Clinton called Trump voters a basket of deplorables, I think those are very precarious moments in politics if you and end up Gordon saying something Brown like that. Gordon Brown and the bigoted woman. Of course. Right? Yeah, of and course. The, you can see why it's been lapped on and clearly... I think James Cleverly is actually quite cleverly trying to muddy the waters a bit and the argument is now about exactly what he said rather than the rightness or wrongness of, you know, calling a constituency a, uh, what's the polite way of saying, an excrement Yesterday we settled on proverbial toilet and then there was a debate just before we came on air about whether, you know, using Nancy Mitford's you and non-you, we should be, you know, how whether that itself was somehow offensive. But you see, where we got caught up in the fog around it. He's very cleverly dodged the, uh, dodged the issue at hand here. Cleverly all... by name, yes, cleverly yeah, by exactly. nature. Uh, right, James, let's talk about your column from yesterday, which was really, really interesting. You've written about how posh people are no more interesting than the rest of us after watching the, fair to say, divisive film Saltburn by Emerald Fennell. Uh, here's a little clip from the trainer. You think you'll go home? Home doesn't mean the same for me as it does for you, Felix. Well, why don't you come home with me? Come to Saltburn. I see 
see why Felix likes you so much. You're so, um, real. This place, it's not for you. I can honestly say that these last few months have been the happiest of my life. Uh, James, without giving away the plot of Saltburn, which essentially is about, as people would have heard, a scouser who is beguiled by a garden variety posho and goes to stay at Saltburn, which is the uh, their country pile. Uh, without giving too much away, what do you think he got wrong and what does that reveal about how this country views the very poshest? Yeah, well, I kind of rolled my eyes a bit at this film, which is in a long and venerable tradition of, I think, British films, TV shows, books, really kind of fawning and obsessing over aristocrats, their beautiful houses, uh, idealising places like Oxford University, think, you know, saying how marvellous and wonderful and exotic and magical these places are. And I think the also the other slightly irritating fact about this film is that its central character is this guy, Oliver, who is from, we're led to believe, a pretty working-class background who is obsessed by all the aristocrats he meets at Oxford and desperate to join their world and finds them so fascinating and beguiling. And I kind of think that's actually a bit unrealistic. And, you know, Emerald Fennell, the director, is herself from a very wealthy background. I think there's a kind of bit of complacency among people from the upper classes that everybody must find them incredibly magical and interesting and fascinating and beguiling. Whereas I suspect were it more true to life, someone arriving at Oxford University from a less privileged background would just find all the aristocrats kind of uninteresting, um, snotty, and a bit boring, ultimately. And I was just objecting to this unfortunate British tradition of fawning over and glamorising the upper classes. Downton Abbey, Brideshead Revisited, there's mm. an Alan Hollinghurst novel, The Line of, Line of Beauty, which has a similar plot, and... I don't know. Aristocrats aren't as interesting or magical as they sometimes seem to think they are. Are you prepared to mount a defence of uh, of aristocrats as magical and interesting in India? No, I'm really, really not. I find them very boring um, and sort of rather samey. And I completely agree with James. You know, the idea that I mean, I think I think there's something arguably anthropologically interesting in sort of peering at them on a TV screen. But but the idea that somebody normal would find themselves at Oxford and start charging around desperate to be friends with these people. It's completely inauthentic. You know, that they, they, they'd be much more likely to laugh at those people or to despise them or to find them, to find them just really weird and kind of other. Um, and I think, I mean, James is absolutely right. You know, the, the, the way in which we're, I don't know if it's we, I don't know if it's we, the viewing public, or whether it's people who make stuff, but <clears throat> the idea that these people are in any way enviable apart from wealth take money out of it but that the way they live and the food they eat and the words they use and the way they decorate their houses is compelling and and envy making is really strange to me i mean i i don't know i know lots of people who'd like to live in a big giant house with servants but i don't know anybody who would want to live in that kind of very small rather inbred world you know going rah 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 around their london house and their country house and their it's they're a sort of I mean, good luck to them. It's fine. I don't, I'm not calling for revolution, but I have no interest in participating in any thing to do with any of them, really. Uh, and James, I have you? to... Uh, me? No, absolutely not. Uh, I'll join you both in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in ticking that box. Uh, James, I have to congratulate you and commend you for 
putting some respect on the name of, uh, as the kids would say, putting some respect on Alan Bennett's name uh, in your column, <laughs> saying the actual, the, the, the story that tells the real, uh, yeah. the sort of the work that tells the real uh, story about class and aspiration and elite universities in this country is Alan Bennett's The History Boys about grafting grammar school boys who want self-improvement and want intellectual stimulation. Yeah, that's a way more interesting story. Uh, you know, we kind of love to obsess over Oxford and Cambridge in this country, but the most interesting thing about Oxford and Cambridge isn't the aristocrats who, you know, turn up there by birthright. It's the people who kind of fought to get there, which is what Alan Bennett's brilliant play, and it's also a film, which I highly recommend, is all about. That's a way more exciting story about people kind of moving up in the world rather than just mm. sort of sitting around inheriting Being languid, everything they ever yeah. expected. Being languid, yeah. Very against uh, languidness. Against against languor, <laughs> uh, says James Marriott. Also, apologies don't look, to... Don't em- look back in languor. <laughs> <laughs> apologies to Emerald, Emerald uh, Fennell, by the way, not Fennell, uh, as in roast. Um, thank you to the oh, senior God. member of Times Radio staff who's got in touch to clarify that one. Oh, wow. uh, they're also very nice about Fennell. the show. Uh, Fennell. Emerald Fennell. Uh, I hope she. Uh, well, I hope she's not listening because no, you just so savaged her film. Uh, right, coming up, we're going to ask an etiquette expert if India's wrong to already have her Christmas tree up. You don't want to miss that. No, no, no. Hang on. Can I just clarify? Oh, go on. I haven't, I haven't got my Christmas tree up because that would be wrong. I have got a Christmas tree. Up. I'm sorry, I have, a Christmas I have shoehorned a Christmas tree into the kitchen, and I might have a couple of strings of lights up. Well, but not the actual main tree. There's the case for the defence. This is Times Radio. There you go. Thanks to Callum in the gallery for that one. You don't get that sort of seamless treatment with Aynar on. Uh, you're listening to Patrick Maguire in for Match Only Times Radio. I'm joined by Indian Knight and James Marriott, who's the subject of an absolutely foul text uh, from a listener here. <laughs> this is amazing. Had to come off the motorway to text you as I was getting so annoyed. I'm afraid and feel James has completely misunderstood the brilliant film Saltburn. Hope your listeners will watch it with, with an open mind. It's way more complex than a Downton Abbey type drama. So that's you told, James. That is me told. And I, I have to say, I did think, in spite of my objections to it, it did entertain me. I think it's worth watching. Right. She's really good, Emerald Fennell. Her previous film was fantastic with... Um... Carrie Mulligan. Promising young woman. Uh, Promising young woman, yeah. She's great. It's just the topic is not necessarily immediately appealing. Well, something that else isn't isn't immediately appealing to to some people in India is your decision to put a Christmas tree up, as you told subscribers on your Substat recently, to adjudicate (laughs) on whether you have made the right decision or not. Laura Windsor, an etiquette expert from Laura Windsor Etiquette and Protocol Academy, joins us now. Hi, Laura. Hello there. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Right, India's defence is that she has a Christmas tree up and a few strings of Christmas lights. It is, of course, the 24th of November. Is that forgivable at all? It's really all about personal preference. Great boost in dopamine, makes people happy, and that is what the run-up to Christmas is all about. So if you want to put your main Christmas tree up now, why not? Is 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 there any you know how early is too early? Is there a definitive? Say, if I had my Christmas tree up in October, surely you would say that's ridiculous. Or are you are you really saying that if it makes me happy, I should go for it? Both. Traditionally, the start uh, you put the Christmas tree up at the start of Advent, which is about which is four Sundays before Christmas. So this year it would fall on the third of December. There's also the Church of England and Catholic Church stance where they say that Christmas trees shouldn't be put up until the 17th. Anything after the 17th is fine. 
but it's up to you, really. And so, India, you write uh, on your Substack that you used to be categorical about no trees until mid-December, but this is this has cheered you up. It's really cheered me up. I st- I did it in the first lockdown. The lockdowns kind of merged into one in my head. But I did it in the first lockdown because it was so gloomy. It was so scary. The situation was so scary in the outside world. We were, you know, stuck at home. It was dark. The news was horrible. Every time you turned the radio on, there was some other sort of catastrophic COVID-related thing that had happened. And I just thought, why not? You know, I really love Christmas. I love lights i love lights in darkness i love the ornaments that my children made 30 years ago so i so i put it up thinking well nobody you know nobody's allowed in nobody's going to see it and it properly brought me joy and comfort and happiness and then the following year there was another lockdown around about i don't know the end of october or something so i did it again and then by last year i was just completely into it and um this year i patiently waited until november the 22nd and I'm very glad I did, and I really recommend it. James, will you have a Christmas tree up at any point? Yes. And I think... In wow. Just, in, I, I love Christmas, and if, as I imagine you also do, you go home for Christmas to your parents... I do. You've got to get the Christmas tree up early, otherwise you just won't see it. That was Indian Night and James Marriott as ever on a Friday. Remember, you can read them both in The Times, multiple times, every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox to get yourself a subscription. Up next, we're talking winter. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Well, it's time to turn up the heating and pull out your winter coats because this weekend is promising to be one of the chilliest yet this year. Weather presenter Sarah Thornton joins me now to talk us through it. Morning, Sarah. Morning to you. Yeah, morning. You're quite right. It's going to be a bit of a shock, actually, especially if you're in somewhere like East Anglia. Yesterday it was 15 degrees and then with a wind chill, it uh, kind of feels like temperature today is uh, closer to freezing. So it's wow. going to be a really big shock. So just yeah. just how cold is it going to get across the country? 
Uh, well, sub-zero by night quite widely uh, tonight, tomorrow night, maybe even Sunday night as well. Uh, temperatures down as low as minus five, minus six degrees in central parts. And I'm not just talking about kind of the highlands of Scotland as well. Uh, so certainly some really chilly, frosty nights. We're pulling in a northerly wind, Arctic air, you know, already starting to cool off at this time of year. We're not quite in meteorological terms in winter yet, but we're not far off it in uh, climate terms. We start the uh, start of December for the start of winter. So we're just at the very tail end of autumn in that way but yeah once you start to get a northerly wind set in at this time of year you're going to know all about it and that cold air is flooding right down to the very south of the uk and how do you think this winter will compare to last winter markedly colder do you think uh, no, I mean, it's anyone's guess. There are a number of factors, of course, that affect how a whole season pans out. And with climate change being what it is, you know, your chances of a cold winter are kind of significantly less now because of uh, what's going on across the world. And add to that, this year, we've started an El Nino phase, which is uh, the Eastern Pacific warmer waters than usual. And uh, normally that's a phase that lasts a number of years. We were previously in the La Nina phase. Now we're in the El Nino. So that can also affect things. What it can actually do though in El Nino for us is give us blocking later in the season so sort of towards the end of February beginning of the springtime period and when you get blocking in the UK that's when you start to pull in some colder air now last winter last year we actually started I don't know if you remember this in December with some snow as far south as parts of the Midlands Buckinghamshire where I live we had it as well uh, that was the very sort of second week of December and then after that so December itself was cold but after that it turned milder again so we've had a run of really mild winters of course some of the mildest on record and this year we've had some very warm weather september broke records right across the whole of the world mm. globally many many countries in the world saw the warmest september on record this year so we're going into winter for us in the northern hemisphere with having had some really warm weather and uh, yeah we've got a little bit of a, a short sharp shock uh, which might last all the way through next week but after that I have to say at this point, we don't know. Uh, and what odds are white Christmas? <laughs> uh, they're, they're increasingly small, white Christmases. I uh. mean, it depends what the criteria you're using. What you really mean, I think, is you're asking me if there's going to be a snowy Christmas. You're asking me if when you pull your curtains back on the morning of the 25th, will you see some snow lying on the ground? I mean, that is uh, becoming not vanishingly rare, but quite rare. Uh, but uh, a, a white Christmas, of course, is just a flake of snow falling somewhere in the 24 hours of uh, the 25th of December. So, you know, yes, you see that, don't you? Because you see a bit of snow over the tops of the mountains further north. Uh, in terms of waking up to a white carpet of snow, I doubt it. I would say probably not. If only. Well, Sarah Thornton, weather forecaster, thanks very much for joining us to talk us through what winter we can expect. And as we head into a particularly chilly couple of months, we can be thankful that it won't be anything close to the big freeze of 1947, a cold snap so severe that it brought post-war Britain to a standstill. Cruiser report impossible conditions. Snow, ice and raging seas. The men who were trying to dig the vehicles out were having a heartbreaking as well as a backaching job. We just had to give it up, he said. As fast as we shovel the stuff away, blew back. Well, the political historian Phil Tinline, author of The Times, Political Book of the Year, The Death Consensus, is here to talk us through what winter means to British politicians and some of Britain's most politically fraught winters in history. Hello, Phil. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Great to see you as ever. We just heard about the big freeze in 1947. Talk us through it. How long did it last? 
and what were the consequences? Well, it lasts quite a long time, and the, the consequences are, as always with these situations, that it puts uh, pressure on existing problems. Winter just makes everything worse. And the problem at that point is that there is a shortage of manpower in the coal industry, or manpower, as people used to say on the BBC at the time. And once you also freeze the coal stocks and make it much harder for people to move around, of course, Britain at this point is massively dependent on coal for its electricity supply, it basically brings the country to a standstill. But there's another sort of symbolic thing about it, which is that this is the Labour government of 1945 brought in to make sure, as I always say, that we must never go back to the mass unemployment of the 1930s. And during this winter, because it's so difficult to move around or generate any electricity, unemployment goes above 1 million for the only time between 1940 and 1972. So this is an absolute crisis moment for that government to see if it can make supplies sort of come back on stream. And there's, you know, much talk from Attlee on the radio, which sounds very much like wartime, about, you know, essential services only, the BBC is reduced to sort of minimal hours, you know, the heroic work of the soldiers and the coal miners. So it's a real kind of hangover from the war, and it's a test of whether, you know, you can create the new world that they want to create. And just how badly did it affect productivity and employment, say? Is it literally a case of the economy is grinding to a standstill because people can't move. Yeah, I mean, I think unemployment reaches 1.5 million, uh, briefly at least. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 it's very hard to remember almost now how dependent we were on coal. If the coal physically freezes and the miners can't get into the mines and there aren't enough miners in the first place, you start to get really severe problems. You know, you have fishermen not able to operate, all sorts of things. It's just, it, it's, it's a really good example, I think, and not in a sort of overly political way, just in a sort of existential way of just how much pressure it puts on the systems. A decade and a half later, there's another big freeze under a Tory government, not a Labour government. And that's in 1962. For 10 weeks, 10 long weeks, the nation endures freezing temperatures and heavy snowfall. For London, it was the coldest January since records were first kept in 1841. For Manchester, it was the coldest since records were first kept in 1888. For Aberdeen, it was the coldest since at least 1895. For Southampton, Bognor Regis and Worthing, it was the coldest since their records were started in 1900. When you've been through the sort of weather we've all endured these last seven weeks, there's some gratification in knowing that it's been more than just bad weather. This one has already earned its place among the five most spectacularly bad winters of the last hundred years. It will go down in history and folk memory as that terrible winter of 1963. So how did the government handle this one? Well, in much the same way. I mean, it's, it's you know, just trying to kind of keep the basic things uh, running. I mean, it, you have to be careful what you wish for, Patrick, in terms of white Christmases. I mean, it's on Boxing Day that it starts snowing, and it's it keeps snowing for uh, 10 weeks. But, you know, you have water freezing in the pipes. You have queues forming in the street for people to fill buckets from municipal standpipes. You have, you know, uh, people giving birth by candlelight. All of the imagery that we expect when something goes wrong in winter. But the odd thing about this one, I think, compared to some of the one, other ones we're going to talk about, and in the late 40s as well, in 1947, is it, it doesn't feel like it arrives uh, into a political crisis that it affects quite as much. I mean, the writer Juliet Nicholson wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Freezequake about it, about how Britain sort of froze and then emerged into a sort of spring awakening as a different country. But I think that's a sort of, uh, it's, it's brilliant symbolism, but it's symbolism that we might project back onto it rather than something that was necessarily People feeling at the time. time. Yeah, I think so. Well, because yeah. when you look back at that sort of first four years of that decade, it's the, you know, the years the Beatles emerge. Right. Teenage culture properly emerges. Uh, 
Hume, uh, Douglas Hume gives way to Wilson, right. you know, the old aristocratic Edwardian order and the old Etonian to the upwardly mobile, younger grammar school generation, right? But these are things that become much more obvious in hindsight. And, you know, if you're a, a columnist or a popular historian groping for a... Uh, groping for a sort of device, I'm sure, you know, it's a very good one, Juliet Nicholson has uh, has uh, alighted on. I mean, the details are brilliant, you know, icebergs floating down the Mersey while the Beatles record Please Please Me, I mean, it couldn't really wow. be better, you know. Um, and, you know, this is the year that famously, you know, is female scandal and the whole sense that a sort of Edwardian stiff upper lip Britain, you know, has reached its end and that, you know, suddenly, you know, if you're like the Beatles, you're like Tom Courtney or Albert Finney or you know, all those sort of people, you know, that your, your aspirational, you know, Saki working class spirit is, is you know, with the zeitgeist and that, you know, certainly Harold Macmillan looks like a complete dinosaur. Um, but, you know, how much that has to do with the actual winter is another matter. But also it's a good metaphor for a Tory government in its 12th, 13th year looking tired. And I don't know why you'd mention that. <laughs> I've, never, I've never heard of such a thing. Um, talking of coal, which we mentioned a couple of times, uh, a cold winter inevitably means people need more power. That was part of Liz Truss's undoing this time last year, of course, when she was staring down the barrel of a cold winter with a need for a lot of energy that people couldn't afford, hence the borrowing, hence the reaction of the markets to that and the mini-budget. Uh, but in the 1970s, it wasn't Russian gas, it, gas, it, was, uh, it was coal power. Uh, and, uh, and you know, all of that was dug from, uh, from the UK, or most of it anyway. And that means it's not just bad weather that causes Britain to grind to a halt in winter. It handed a lot of power to the miners' unions and other unions, and the 70s in particular, so moving on a decade from the big freeze of the early 60s, the 70s in particular, the early 70s and beyond, were a period of intense ca uh, power struggle between the big unions and the government. And so the miners' strike continues. And while it continues, coal supplies begin to decline. First hit, of course, is the domestic scene. Miners are stepping up their picketing of supplies, but they've promised that essential services will not be affected, such as hospitals and old-age pensioners. So remind us, Phil... Of just how significant it was in 1972 when the miners go on strike. I mean, in the popular imagination, we always now imagine the miners on strike because of the 70s and 80s. But 72, they go on strike under Edward Heath. It's the first time they've done so in 50, in 46 years, which yeah, is quite that, something. That's right. There had been uh, unofficial strikes, not nationwide, in the late 60s because in the younger parts of the NUM, which come to be embodied through this strike in Arthur Scargill, you have a more radical uh, generation rising up, you know, compared to Joe Gormley, the leader of the NUM. Um, but yeah, there had not been an official nationwide miners' strike since 1926. And even then, it was thought that the miners were slightly on their last legs. And so there's a, a brilliant um, documentary, or brilliant in its sort of symbolism, uh, half-hour Thames TV documentary made at the beginning of the strike, presented by the brilliant journalist Peter Taylor, um, called uh, The Miners' Last Stand, which absolutely summarises where people think you know, the miners' chances lie. And so part of the issue with this strike is that it hits, you know, they call it in January at exactly the moment when it's going to have the most effect. But what follows on from that is it is just generally much, much more effective, much better organised, much more creative than people are expecting. This is when flying picketing really takes off. Now, one reason for that is miners have cars. You know, they're sufficiently well paid, you know, which is a good thing, obviously, that they have cars, but they organise in an extraordinarily effective 
effective way to make sure that lorries aren't breaking, you know, uh, picket lines and they have a sort of permit system and so on. And they also have the support of, you know, the mass ranks of the working class. So when Arthur Scargill drives down to Birmingham to famously organise his picket at uh, the co- uh, Coke Works at Saltley, he's able, when he realises it's going to be hard to keep the gates shut, to go round the local car plants and drum up thousands upon thousands of pickets who just take the day off and come and come and shut the coke plant and that goes right into cabinet immediately because the uh, the chief constable of west midlands police had said Sir derek capper had said you know there is no way that uh, i'm going to have to shut the gates uh, on the today program that morning <laughs> by you know 11 o'clock the news has come into cabinet that they have shut the gates and that haunts the conservative party for 13 years and it's still the achievement Arthur Scargill is proudest of. Obviously, this strike, as you say, leads to rolling power outages. Here's how, how some people handled them at the time. For lighting, I've got the candle. Very difficult to get candle now because I'm always late, all gone. Anyway, I'm going to pub opposite and spend sitting there. To the pub? In the pub. I'm getting on splendidly, thank you. First thing in the morning, I... Fill my hot water bottle and put it into my couch. Well, like everybody else, I mean, the night before last, I spent the evening with candles and a lovely fire. And really, it's the sort of evening that I'd like to spend more often. I shall do it even when we have the electricity back. It's very nice. And the power struggle continued throughout 1972 and into 1973. Here's a snippet of an interview with Ted Heath after he declared a state of emergency in November 1973. We had a difficult situation to deal with. A combination of factors... First of all, the trade figures. Secondly, the not working overtime in the coal mines. Thirdly, a world problem of oil. And, as I've said, we dealt decisively with it. And in the winter of 73 to 74, industrial action by coal miners and railway workers resulted in the three-day week, as it became known. The Heath government limited commercial consumption of electricity to just three consecutive days every week. Patrick Jenkin, a cabinet minister, famously tells people to brush their teeth and shave by candlelight, despite his house being photographed with all the lights on. It's a reminder, Phil, of just how much influence the unions could exert, how much damage they could inflict, particularly during wintertime. Yeah, I mean, it's it, what it does is it brings the country right up against necessity. You know, this is the country that, you know, through the 60s has, you know, felt itself to be more affluent, more colourful, more prosperous, and this brings it sharply up against what you absolutely have to maintain. I mean, you know, in the defence of the NUM, you know, their pay had been dropping down pretty significantly uh, down the pay scales by 1972, which is why they struck for a 27% pay rise at that point. You know, there is a case that, you know, something similar happened in the late uh, part of 1973 into 74. They finally called the strike in January 74. But nonetheless, it puts absolutely immense pressure on that whole post-war model where, you know, through effectively deals, incomes policies between the trade unions, to some extent business, and the government, you agree to keep pay at a certain limited level. And that whole model is just coming up against the desire, the the drive of people like Arthur Scargill to have a fight and win it. Of course, what starts to happen is that on the other side, people like Margaret Thatcher also decide to have a fight and also want to win it. Well, let's hear Margaret Thatcher now. I must tell you that what we've got is an attempt to substitute the rule of the mob for the rule of law. She was pitted against Mar- Arthur Scargill, who by then was president of the National Union of Mine Workers. I say to the people of Britain, if you stand aside while miners are beaten to the ground by a paramilitary police force in riot gear, 
What they do to us today, they'll do to you tomorrow. So it's really interesting, this. What Mrs Thatcher has done by 74 has learned from the mistakes of Edward Heath and she has stockpiled coal and has managed to circumvent the winter difficulties that Heath experienced. You know, she has stockpiled coal and has managed to beat the miners in that 84 strike. Yes, by, by 1984. I mean, yeah, I mean, to be fair to Ted Heath, um, you know, and... and I think people often with Thatcher sort of think that it's a little bit more kind of uh, brilliantly and sort of, you know, uh, sinisterly planned than perhaps it actually was. But, you know, Heath is thinking about how you, you know, effectively make the police force work on a national scale straight after the 1972 strike. If you look through the Home Office papers, Ministry of Defence papers, there's an awful lot of talk about that long, long before Thatcher's even Conservative leader, let alone Prime Minister. But yes, I mean, by 1984, that is certainly true that, you know, they've started stockpiling. But other things are strongly working in their favour. You know, for one thing, um, the announcement of the closure of six pits in very short order comes in March. Now, from one perspective, you might say, well, that's done completely deliberately. I'm not necessarily sure that that's true. But either way, because the miners go on strike effectively just after the end of winter, it's only after months and months of gruelling, you know, uh, strike action that the winter uh, effect finally kicks in. And by that point, the government's in a strong place. But also, of course, you know, it's changed the law on uh, secondary picketing. It's changed the law in terms of the trade unions in various different ways. And you have the whole period of mass unemployment um, after 1979, which means the trade union movement as as a whole is more on the back foot and so the support that you saw in you know immense successfully way in at saltley gate in 1972 just doesn't happen you know the trade unions want to find a way to make a deal they don't want to do this brilliantly organized military uh, attack and so yeah the miners are left much much more isolated much more like they were in 1926 that's the really sort of elegiac thing you know 1972 uh, dennis skinner's father sort of said he was so pleased he'd lived to see 1972 having lived through 1926 and been blacklisted but 1984-85 takes them effectively right back to that across the uk on dab online and on your smart speaker this is times radio you're listening to Patrick mcguire Informat Chorley here on times radio i'm still joined by the political historian phil tinline who's been talking us through political fiascos of winter's past and the role they play in shaping our politics today And what would this list be without the winter of discontent when 4.6 million workers went on strike in rail, water, bakery, haulage, nursing, ambulances and most infamously grave digging and refuse collection. The streets were strewn with rubbish because of striking bin men. To ease the health and fire dangers, squares as famous as Leicester Square have been transformed into special dumps. But while this site may seem offensive enough, councils say these dumps should be much fuller. Too few individuals and firms, they say, are bothering to bring rubbish to dumps. Instead, they're taking the easy way out, opening their doors and leaving rubbish outside. So, Phil, in the midst of the freezing winter of 1978-1979, more than 2,000 strikes erupt across Britain... And this is the undoing of the Callaghan government, really, isn't it? Yeah, it had managed to solve the problem that Heath couldn't solve within the 1972-1974 strikes, uh, brokered by Jack Jones of the Transport and General Workers' Union and Michael Foote, who's been a you know, virtually lifelong backbencher, but comes in as Employment Secretary. They create this thing, the social contract, where 
the unions exert some pay restraint in return for all sorts of other ancillary benefits. That lasts through till 1978, and then Callaghan fatally decides that he needs to hold uh, incomes policy down for another year, wants a 5% limit, you know, which is expected is going to apply in the private sector, which is something that's very hard to get your head around now. Uh, inflation at this point is at 10%, and you know, working people have generally just had enough and have elected to trade union leaders, including Jack Jones's own successor, who are elected specifically to say no to this. And so, you know, once you get this uh, 5% limit in, Ford workers in a very thriving car company say, well, no, we'd like 17%. Actually, and, and is there something about this all kicking off over winter? Obviously, you have the evocative name uh, from Shakespeare's Richard III, Winter of Discontent. But is there something about the, all of this happening in winter that makes it more difficult, more emotive? I mean, you obviously have at some level if you have public sector strikes in winter, physically that's difficult for lots of people. But is there something about the sort of symbolism of this happening in winter, the dead going unburied during winter, for instance? Absolutely. No, it gives it gives it a sense of, you know, not the apocalypse exactly, but things reaching an ex, a point of extremity, a point beyond which we can't go, that things have frozen into place. And it's striking that if you look back through the 70s, this is not the first time people talk about the possibility of a winter of discontent. The Telegraph talks about it in 1972. Hugh Scanlon, leader of the engineers, talks about it in 1974. There was always the fear, because you had a winter pay round, that if the winter pay round ended up with lots of strikes, that this sort of thing would happen. Thatcher talks about it, uses the phrase in 1975. So this is this has the feeling of something that has been long feared finally arriving. And absolutely the fact that it's about uh, the cold and it's a particularly cold winter is crucial. I mean, the, the strikes in between the Ford strike, which is largely in September, and the famous public sector strikes you mentioned are strikes among uh, hauliers and oil tanker drivers. And that's where a lot of the imagery of closed polling, uh, petrol stations and, you know, uh, candles and power cuts and so on come from. Uh, and they organise it in an extraordinary way. There are no confrontations with the police as there are in 1972. There are all sorts of dispensation systems and control committees, uh, you know, at uh, Tilbury and Hull. You have to kind of basically persuade the pickets to be let through and you may well not be. And then it's after that that you get to the strikes in January, February. And that's partly why it has this sort of sense of, of weight to it. It's freezing winter and there's three different waves of strikes. Uh, more recently, there were widespread uh, strikes last Christmas, skyrocketing energy prices, uh, a cost of living crisis as well. Some were drawing the comparisons to the winter of discontent. Was that a fair parallel? I mean, it is in terms of the immediate events, in terms of the immediate imagery. But I think, you know, you have to come at it from the opposite uh, angle because, you know, people were saying, oh, is this going back to the 70s? Well, you know, famously, you can't go back to the 70s. You get to the 70s through what we've been describing, the 40s, 50s, 60s, when the unions are quite powerful, incomes policy, even in the private sector, is normal. And the trade unions, you know, as I say, uh, are empowered both legally and by their, their weight of numbers and what's expected, you know, when we come to the strikes last year, it's like going back to the beginning of all of that process somewhere more like in the 20s and 30s in terms of the power that the trade unions had. So the imagery is the same, but the power balance is opposite. Uh, and now energy has returned to the forefront of our politics, as have trade unions. Uh, you know, you have the nightmare scenario of NHS collapses in the coming winter during the early stages of the COVID response. And of course, winter will only be more fraught uh, in the years to come because of climate change, any changes to the climate that change the way we deal with winter, politicians are going to have to face these problems again and again and again. That's all we got time for on today's podcast. Thank you to Indian Knight, James Marriott and last but not least, Phil Tinline. I'll be back on Monday, but remember to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts from. Have a good weekend. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.